0: Today we have an unbelievable episode for you, and I'm so excited to share it with you. But before we get going, I just wanted to mention to you about my book, Expat Secrets, How to Pay Zero Taxes, Live Overseas, and Make Giant Piles of Money. Now, I wrote this book almost four years ago, and it became a number one bestseller. And just recently, four years on, it has become a number one bestseller again. So there are a lot of people out there who are getting a lot of value from this book and I get comments literally every day how this book has changed their lives. So I'm really excited to have done this and I want you, if you haven't already, to go out there and pick up a copy. It is completely evergreen. The knowledge and the things that I share in it are timeless. Okay. There might be one or two programs that have changed with immigration, but the concept, the ideas, the mentality of being an expat and how all of these pieces fit together for the offshore markets, it is still applicable. So if you go to Amazon and search my name, Mikel Thorpe or expat secrets, it should come up at the very, very first. Otherwise, if you go to expatmoneyshow.com, you should see some links on my website that will redirect you to Amazon in your region to pick up the book. So, Expat Secrets, if you haven't had a chance to read it, then I suggest you do now. Support the show. All the money goes back into the podcast to produce this content for you, so I appreciate the support. And if you want to be a really cool human being, do me a favor and leave a review for the book. I really appreciate it. It really helps new authors like me to sustain and pay for all of this type of stuff so your support is definitely welcome that's it enjoy today's episode i hope you get a ton out of it and i will talk to you soon welcome 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 my name is mikhail thorpe this is the expat money show and today's guest is the wandering investor After obtaining his Bachelor's of Business Administration from Bishop's University in Canada and his Master's of International Business Law from the University of Sydney in Australia, he spent seven years in the corporate world. At age 30, after a fantastic experience, great learning, and a profitable side in investments, he cashed out and wandered off. Wanting to deepen his investing skills, he has traveled to almost 100 countries and lived in in a dozen different countries across Europe, North America, the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and Oceania. He speaks English, French, Russian, and German. Wow. If investing outside of your home country, preferably somewhere with higher growth potentials or yield is what you're looking for, then you are going to love this podcast episode. Please welcome to the show, Ladislav Maurice. Ladislav, how are you doing please welcome to the show good 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 thank you Mikkel. thank you why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of walk us through your backstory there's just like a ton of things here in your intro and I want to unpack so many of them I already see a ton of similarities and we've become uh, fast friends over the last month or two so so I'm super excited to learn from you today and I, I want to hear how you got into all of this
1: yeah sure so it, it it's very much linked to uh, to what you do actually I I grew up, my parents were expats. Um, So from the sweet age of two, I was going around traveling with my parents. So I did all my grade school in Canada, all my high school all over Europe. And then for for university, I decided to go back to Canada. And even during my university time, whenever I had a summer break and I had to find some internship or some work experience, I wouldn't stay in Canada. I'd head out to Eastern Europe and um, Central Asia. So I got some internships in Lithuania, in Russia, in uh, in Kyrgyzstan, in Central Asia. So at that at the time, I was learning Russian. So that was a really, really interesting, uh, really, really interesting experience. So all my all my classmates from college would you know work I don't know somewhere they'd go to Alberta or you know Vancouver and work for the summer, and then I'd be in. Uh, I'd be in Central Asia, living very low cost, <laughs> <Amazing>. <laughs> and trying to improve my my Russian and getting that work experience. So that was really cool.
0: Well, man, there's so many things I want to dig into. But first of all, I want to say I have never been to Central Asia, and I'm super super excited to to get to all of the Stan countries one day. So, w- give me a quick brief down, like uh, briefing, like what was your experience like living in that part of the world? It was back then.
1: I lived in Kyrgyzstan uh, when there was an attempted revolution, uh,
0: so that was quite interesting. Did you partake? Were you were you out marching? Did do they march? Did they protest?
1: Yeah, yeah, they were marching. The, like all the villagers got brought into in, on buses from the villages, and they were protesting on the streets. And I had a nice view of it because my my apartment um, overlooked one of the one of the parks in uh, in Bishkek, in the capital. So I got like a prime view of what was happening it really wasn't safe to go up because the police was actually just completely gone. There's barely any police anymore. It's pretty chaotic. So for, for a week it wasn't, uh, wasn't very safe. But apart from that, I mean, the experience was really good. I taught, um, I volunteered as an assistant lecturer at the American university of central Asia. So I was teaching some, uh, management classes. So that was really interesting. I taught at two universities actually, and the, the students were very different. Um, so the American University of Central Asia was kids that had scholarships, but often many of them were quite wealthy from, diff- from the stance, from the whole stance. So they were like very confident and, you know, they, they knew where they were going, et cetera. So teaching to them required kind of taming them a little bit and, you know, making sure that they understood that, you know, they weren't the only people in the room. Whilst at the other university I, I volunteered at, that was the Kyrgyz National University. I taught in French there. And it was the, the best local university. And it was really just taking people from everywhere in Kyrgyzstan, the best students from local high schools, and giving them that scholarship to study in the, in the capital city. And there was the opposite. It was trying to build confidence and make them understand that they could you know, go against what I was saying and they could challenge me. Because uh, in their culture, you don't just, you know, um, contradict what the what the lecture is saying. So it was two very different teaching styles.
0: Well, I spend a lot of time with people from Russia and from Soviet, uh, former Soviet Union. So the cultures are so much different, especially with the uh, slightly older generation, or even, I suppose, my generation, um, because they grew up in that Soviet style of. Of, of life. And I think that it permeates through like every interaction, you, you can just see it. Um, did you, did you see a lot of that while you were there?
1: Definitely. Um, it still is kind of the case in some of the countries, but when you go, so that was back then, that was um, like 15 years ago, approximately. Uh, but since then I've been going back to central Asia on a regular basis. And it's completely—it's just changed dramatically. Um, if you go to
0: Kazakhstan, all right, I'm coming. I'm coming next time. I'm coming next time with you. all right?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And good investment opportunities.
0: Oh yeah, amazing. It seems like one of those countries that you kind of want to go with somebody else. Like the majority of the countries I've been to, um, like we've traveled—you know—right around that hundred hundred country mark. Most of them I've done by myself, but there are a few that. You know, you think oh, it's probably a good place to go with someone else.
1: If you don't speak Russian, it's a little hard. I'll put it that way. Um, but it's safe; it's not dangerous. Um, if you go to Kazakhstan, for example, it's actually very modern, fantastic infrastructure. Um, it's it's kind of like the Dubai of the of the of Central Asia. Uh, you know, you have all these skyscrapers and just you know fast trains and. Brand new airports and et cetera. So it's it's changed a lot in the last uh, in the last 15 years. But now the big story is Uzbekistan. Um, it's a country that until up to three years ago was completely closed, uh, completely closed off to the to the, you know external to the real world. Um, they had this uh, dictator who passed away, and then this new president took over. And he's been pushing through massive reforms in the economy. So the country's been opening up and it's booming. Like Uzbekistan is one of the the few countries worldwide that is is booming. Um, It has a lot of tourism potential. We have, you know, Samarkand and the whole, you know, Silk Road, historical Silk Road passed through there. Um, And they're privatizing a a bunch of state companies, uh, they're putting out the red carpet for foreign investors. They removed a lot of visa restrictions, so now uh, most Westerners and many other people can enter Uzbekistan visa free. They've just made it a lot, a lot easier. And they're even discussing now allowing low-cost airlines to fly to to fly to Tashkent. So that would be a, a a game changer as well.
0: Well, that's fascinating, and. And I guess I should maybe preface it this episode with my listeners today. I have literally zero questions written down for Lanislaus today. Because we're kind of friends, I thought, you know what, I just want to have like a friendly chat. So this is what I think we're going to do today. I want to hear about some of these cool places like Central Asia. And then, you know, any of the investment opportunities or the things that you've seen or your insights on the economics or the politics. And maybe we just kind of do a, an around the world, and, and just talk about cool places today. Because um, I don't have like specific things. Okay, we need to know the answer. I'm just super curious in general.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, so Uzbekistan, to, to continue with this, I, I went there because my business model essentially is, I, I left uh, Nestle, so I was working for the big food company. My last role there was uh, managing a $90 million dairy business.
0: So where were you based? First, I'm going to slow you down. Were you based out of Switzerland or where were you based?
1: Initially out of Switzerland, then I moved to South Africa for four years and then to Ghana for three years. So my last role in Ghana.
0: Ghana. Does Ghana, does does Nestle have a big Ghana
1: presence? Oh, we're huge. We have like an 80% market share in, in the milk business in Ghana. It's a huge business. It's uh it's a very very big business.
0: I guess it makes sense it's just not one of those things that ever would have occurred to me, I suppose, you know.
1: Yeah, it was it was really it was a really interesting experience. So I was managing the milk business there for Ghana, Ivory Coast, Sierra Leone and Liberia. So I used to travel um in these countries quite Did a bit. Did you
0: get to go to those countries? Yeah,
1: for sure. For sure. I mean, I lived there for, you know, for 3 years, so.
0: Yeah, but I mean like Cote d'Ivoire and Liberia? Like Yeah. Liberia, like those, are pretty full-on places. Like, there's still a lot of tribalism there. Well, from my understanding, I've traveled a lot in Africa, but I haven't had an opportunity to go there.
1: Ivory Coast is an interesting um, is an interesting case because it emerged from the civil war. Their last civil war in 2011, Um, so it really missed out on the whole commodities boom that happened between 2010 and 2014 when Africa was just booming, booming, booming. Ivory Coast was just emerging from from Civil War. So it just missed out on that boom. So the years after that, it really started um, booming and it's still doing quite well right now.
0: Um, I'm just trying to think, like, I, I remember reading so much about Africa. Um, like, I've always had a love affair with Africa and done so many paintings from there and, and researched and read about it. But I don't know if I've ever met besides the couple of guys that have been to like every country on planet earth. And I don't think we ever dug into any of those countries. You talked about some other ones. Um, it's just, uh, that's got to be about as far off the, the beaten path as possible. I would imagine.
1: You know, it's, the, it's investing in Africa in many ways is a contrarian play, but in many other ways, it's a bit of a no brainer. Um, Cause when you just look at the demographics, it's crazy. Like the, the, the these cities, like Abidjan, the the business capital of Ivory Coast, by two thousand fifty will I think like double or triple in, in population. Um, you don't see any of those demographic trends anywhere in Europe or North America or even most of Asia now, apart from you know parts of South Asia and some parts of Southeast Asia. you don't really see that much population growth anymore so that's actually very interesting. When you look long-term, you take into account all the natural resources and the population growth. It's something, it's a very interesting trend. You wouldn't want to be all in Africa, but having some exposure, I think, to Africa is very important.
0: Well, I remember, okay, so I've been to Nigeria several times, and I remember doing a ton of research before I went there. I, I went there for business as well. And when they look at the, the expectations of the population growth, and they You go out, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years and Nigeria will be one of the most populous countries on earth at, you know, I think it was, by I'm going from memory, but at 2050, they're expecting something like 700 million people living in the country, which will, you know, absolutely dwarf the United States and and many other places. And trying to tap into that amazing amount of growth, um, you know, there's just so much potential there. So I imagine with a lot of the smaller countries in Africa, it would be a similar story. Yeah, exactly. That's uh,
1: and there are multiple ways to to invest. Generally, it's African countries allow foreigners to to invest. Um, most African countries have a local stock market, so you can just open a brokerage account and buy shares on the local on the on the local stock exchanges. Um, you can find some very low valuations, you know, companies that pay good dividends, and that should do well in the coming years. It's just not, they're not very liquid markets. Um, it's more, it's, it's one of those, you know, deep value plays, essentially. Um, so it's not like some like tech company in the States that'll just go up and down like crazy, mostly up like like recently. You just, in in those markets, you just buy a deep value and then you just have to be patient. But it's almost inevitable um, unless there's some sort of gross mismanagement that these that these companies will do well in the long run especially if they have like good market sharing locally.
0: Well, I remember having uh, a Polish gentleman on my podcast named Marek, and he was in the startup space. And he, was, he wrote a book actually called um, Chasing Black Unicorns, I think it was. Uh, amazing book, amazing read. And he lived in Africa for half a dozen years, dozen years, something like that, building tech companies there and talking about the growth. Um, but he dealt with just a ton of corruption Uh, in the country and actually had to flee. He was on Interpol's most wanted list for something, actually not most wanted list. He was on the Interpol list and got arrested. Thankfully, it was back in Poland, not when he was uh, actually in Africa that they wanted to extradite him. And it was was, um, having to do with corruption, basically, because someone was trying to muscle in on his business and the company that he was building there. And so they, they falsified information with the courts and submitted it to Interpol and Interpol actually listened um, for a red notice, which was just like, you read, you read his book and, and you, you speak to him and like he's become a friend of mine. Um, it, it's like reading a Jason Bourne or James Bond type of story. Like it's just unbelievable. Now, did you see any type of corruption while you were traveling and living in Africa? Did you have any experience with this type of thing?
1: I mean, it's it's a bit of a constant. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd categorize it in... Um, I think I'd break it down in three parts. Either you're the, the big foreign business, like Nestle, and there you can kind of push your weight around to not have to deal with corruption because the business is so important and so public... Government officials don't really want to to bother you too much. So that's one aspect. If you're that big multinational, a big one, public, you'll probably be fine. Um, Then there's the small, small business where you're just kind of, you know, wheeling and dealing and doing a few deals here and there. You won't be dealing with too much corruption or if you do, it won't be too much of an issue. You know, you can sort it out there and then. Um. But then the risk is when you have a kind of mid-tier successful business with fixed assets where, you know, you're you're big enough to be attractive for someone to really want to push you around, but also um, you're not big enough that you'd get any sort of, you know, PR protection or anything, like not big enough for people to be scared of you. That's the... That's the spot where in which you can find yourself in in quite a few problems. But if you go there yourself just to buy property or to buy shares on the stock exchange, you won't really be dealing with any major corruption issues at all.
0: Well, and then I suppose with the the stock exchange, it's a little bit different because they're not going to be muscling in on your specific shares. I think it's different when you go in there and you're trying to build a business, I I suppose. Because you're still dealing with a local business, so they're going to have their own uh, protection systems and their own mafia built up uh, exactly. to stop that type of thing.
1: Exactly. Um, in terms of property, <laughs> generally, there, there are a few issues with the land. If you start buying land, that, that can be quite risky. Uh, but if you take your time and you recruit a good lawyer, um, generally, you can... You can Manage the situation without uh, without getting screwed or or without you know buying just an empty piece of paper. I I put it this way, and and you would know this, Mikhail, because you've traveled a lot. The risk is often exaggerated. Uh, people like to say some somewhere is very dangerous, but generally, if you go there, it's probably not as dangerous as what people say it is. And when people complain about corruption, if you go there, you do business it's probably not as corrupt as what people say it is it's generally the the perceived risk is higher than the actual risk, I, but personally that's been my my experience traveling around frontier markets,
0: well, and then I think that we can also make an argument that you know there's massive amounts of corruption and theft in western markets as well, yeah, they're just a lot better at it, you know, and it's just not so blatant in your face, um but these things do exist
1: completely or just fifty percent
0: tax rates, I mean, if that's not yeah, theft, which is, is, is just a hard out. Yeah, theft, like right on the front on the front end. But then you also have the Federal Reserve, which is its own special (laughs) type of theft, you know, (laughs) that invisible theft that you know we 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 dubbed inflation, and you know the 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 trillions of dollars that are being printed right now around the world to to deal with the common cold is um, is pretty unbelievable, you know. And that's that's a, a loss of your buying power, which is is corruption, is theft.
1: Completely. And they just all have access to this cheap credit.
0: Exactly. So I want to hear, okay, from the personal side, when you live in a place like Africa, were you living in expat communities? Were you in like a walled off, fortified bunker? Or were you like out there in the, with the locals or were you somewhere in between?
1: I I have to admit that I was in the fortified bunker.
0: <laughs> were you really? I, I was setting you up for going. No, I was out there. <laughs> yeah, that's I, cool. Yeah. That's cool.
1: I'll be honest. <laughs> you know, a, a Swiss company sent me there, so obviously, you know, I was in the bunker. Uh, but it doesn't mean I spent all my time in the bunker. Doesn't um, mean my friends were all in bunkers. So you know, I, I had a good mix of expat and local friends.
0: I think that mix of friends is super important. I think that you know, even people like you and I who have traveled extensively, from, well, arguably for the better part of our lives, um, those expat communities are very valuable. Um, it's that sense of the familiar, which, because things can get overwhelming at some times. Like I have gone, I don't know, what, what's a, a non-rude way of saying this? Like I have had times where I'm just fully involved in the culture and the language and everything like that. But then sometimes it can be quite tiring. Like you need a bit of a break. I remember when I lived in Guatemala and I was living with a local family and I was studying Spanish one on one for five hours a day. And I was eating all my meals with the local family and everything was just like, I was wearing like traditional Mayan clothing in Guatemala (laughs) and it was just, and we were watching TV and then. You know, sometimes at night I'd be like, "Oh my God, I got to go to the pub," and I would go and find like an Irish pub, and I would just go sit around with a bunch of Brits and and watch Western movies and get drunk. And it was like that that release valve, you know, because I was only so much culture and things that I could take in. Um, so I, I think that the the expat communities are really interesting. And then I suppose from the other side, and and I love this for my daughter, that all of her friends and everyone she spends time with is from another country, different country, different culture, different language. And I think that's really cool.
1: Yeah, completely. And it just opens your mind to, to a world of opportunities. Even if things are bleak, wherever it is you are, um, there is somewhere where, you know, there is a boom going on and there are opportunities. That's, that's how I operate. I don't actually, I don't book my calendar more than four months in advance because if I see a trend, I see a country opening up, I see something I wanted to explore I don't want to have to tell myself, oh, uh, let me do this next year in like nine months. I want to be able to do it reasonably fast. And then I just book a flight and I go there for, you know, for a few weeks. I did this for Uzbekistan last year. Um, I really wanted to go. I wanted to go buy an apartment in Uzbekistan. I did all my research. Turned out it wasn't the move I wanted to make. And I came back with a brokerage account. And now I have a bunch of shares in, in
0: Uzbekistan. Well, that's good because being flexible and and being able to go into a situation and think, well, this is what I think should happen. This is what I want to happen. But then being flexible enough to go, you know what, this is not the case. Like I remember when I went to buy um, a villa, a house in in the Middle East, in, in the UAE, and it was a new build and it was, a, um, it was on spec. It was this massive community that they had opened up specifically for expats. And we'd been looking at the floor plans, we had all our financing in place, we had everything ready. And the day that they announced the new uh, area was going to be opened, uh, me and my wife, we showed up there like an hour before the office opened and we waited. And it's funny, in the UAE, they would almost hold like lotteries. So when we came in, we got a special ticket number. The ticket number was 0001. And I was like the first person who was going to have a chance to buy into this new expat community. And like I said, we've been at this for three months, four months getting prepared. And we sat down. And okay, I said to the guy, okay, I want to get uh, Villa number XXY. I can't, I can't remember what the the exact number or. Uh, was but it was like a it was a, a townhouse, and it had windows on this side it was facing this, and it was close to the the clubhouse it was in a golf resort, and away from the mosque and he typed it in the computer tap 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 tap, and it came up, and he 's like nope all sold out like, what the hell okay uh, i 'll take this one, so we had a plan b da, 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 da. nope, all sold out so I was like all right this, this is ridiculous i 'm supposed to be ticket number zero 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 one and uh, I was like, let me speak to let me speak to your rep or your manager or someone above you. He gets the guy and he says, um, "Yeah, the the VIPs came in a couple of weeks ago and they sco- they scooped up all the three bedroom villas, but we do have the four bedroom villas. Um, You know, you should just take one of those." And I'm like, I'm like, okay. First of all, the property I'm trying to build or to buy is a million dollars. It's a million dollar property, and I am not considered a VIP. Like, (laughs) I don't know many, many companies or many businesses that you buy from, you spend a million dollars and you're not a VIP.
1: If you spend a million dollars with me, you'll be a VIP.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And when I have million dollar investors who come to me and I work with, trust me, you are getting the VIP treatment, you know? And, and then second of all, he's like, ah, just, just buy the four bedroom. It's four bedroom. I'm like, it's an extra $300,000. You don't know my situation. You don't know how much extra money (laughs) I have. Who are you just to like wave your hand? Exactly. Just to wave your hand at me and be like, ah, it's okay. Just go for it. And man, we were so excited about these places. They were really beautiful. There was just a whole whole myriad of reasons we wanted to buy in this area. Um, Specifically because the UAE really controls where expats can buy land. And this was a brand new project. So it was going to be massive. And, you know, I after an hour of talking to these people, I had to stand up and just walk away. And like we were quite heartbroken, but you know, at the same time, I I had to do what made financial sense for us. And even though we went there to buy a house, I wasn't just going to you know just throw an extra couple hundred thousand dollars uh, of my money at this. You know, um, and then the funny thing is they, the the UAE funny not ha ha funny but ironic funny is that the UAE just had a a massive correction in the real estate market about like eighteen months after that. So I ended up dodging a giant bullet by the whole thing.
1: Good call. I mean, when you think of it, three hundred thousand dollars for that extra bedroom, you can get yourself a stunning hundred square meter apartment in downtown Budapest
0: for this. I know. It's <laughs> yeah. I mean, I look at some of the investments now around the world, and like, I'm like. Did the money in and, and I guess you kind of get caught up a little bit. Um, I don't know. Have you traveled much in the Middle East, like in the Gulf State countries? I have, yeah. Okay, so you know then as well as I do, the money that is thrown around in those countries, it becomes so different. Like it's like you talk about hundreds of thousands of dollars, like you do tens of thousands of dollars, like you would somewhere else. Like it's totally reasonable to spend. A million dollars, two million dollars, three million dollars for a family home. If I spent three million dollars on a place to live in Panama, that would be like a neighborhood. That would be that would be one of the islands here. You know, like that would just be an an irresponsible amount of money to spend. But in the UAE, that would be a a good size a house, but um, but you know, a single family home.
1: Yeah, it's it's not very good value for money. Uh... There's a residency by investment scheme, which is quite interesting. So you need to invest a minimum, I think it's 25,000 rials, Omani rials, which is about $60,000. You can get a little studio for that, and that gives you residency rights. Um, So that's interesting because Oman is a uh, tax-free country, essentially. If you live there, you become a tax resident, you don't pay any taxes whatsoever. You don't even need to fill out an income tax declaration. The concept of income tax does not exist. So that's interesting. But going to Oman to buy property, uh, hoping to see some capital gains and some good yields, I wouldn't be doing this, no.
0: I kind of figured that was what the answer was. But they've actually, I I assume Oman, because it's part of the, the 7GCC, uh, it must have a 5% VAT as of, what, 2018 or something like that that they introduced.
1: They should have it. They wanted to introduce it for the last two years, but they keep messing up the implementation of it, so it's still not up and running. Darn,
0: darn. <laughs>
1: In spite of ridiculous deficits and everything, it's, nothing has been implemented. It's a bit of a... But fiscal management isn't fantastic.
0: Because one of the reasons I left the UAE is they implemented the 5% VAT. And people might go, oh, come on, it's only 5%. What's the big deal? Well, first of all, tax is theft. Second of all, as soon as government gets a taste for taxation, they're not going to give it back. So I was reading some, nas- some, some articles in the national newspaper in the UAE uh, that my, my friends, because I just have so many friends there after eight years, uh, were sending me. And there was talk about doubling the VAT. They were going to add a inheritance tax, a wealth tax. Uh, there's even talk of an income tax. Plus, they were putting a 100% tax on tobacco products and a 50% tax on sugary goods like Coca-Cola and stuff. Not that I'm a drinker of Coca-Cola, but still a 50% tax on sugary goods. It's like, oh my God. That is... That's
1: that's crazy. And the whole income tax thing and inheritance tax, wealth tax, this essentially is saying that the UAE is dead as a place for for wealth. Um, so I I would short anything I have there, honestly. If they start implementing these things, whatever property I have there, whatever, I would just dump.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because that was the that was why I was there for eight years. You know, that's I had a massive opportunities there we made a ton of money, and I paid zero in tax legally. I want to stress this legally paid zero in tax and had a very free life while I lived there. Um, it was not a war zone, this was not Baghdad. you know it was actually a beautiful place to live with a lot of uh, a lot of freedoms but they build their entire economy on hundred dollar bo- barrel of oil and when oil is sitting at thirty or forty dollars you know things just don't work the same anymore so now now they're just in a mess they've overspent and it's just it's a nightmare
1: and instead of cutting back on fat government salaries and all the nonsense bureaucracy which is what they should do to be able to keep attracting capital and even just retaining capital um, yeah they're just going to raise taxes so what Capital is just going to flee and Dubai is going to go downhill from here if they go ahead with this.
0: That's exactly right. Because what I noticed happening was over the last three or four years, all the quote unquote expensive expats were getting forced out of their jobs, were no longer welcome in the country. When I showed up in 2011, it was like open arms, parades, you know, welcoming ceremonies. Like they were so happy for us to be there as professionals. And then by the time we left, they were like, so rude. They were almost spitting on the ground after us. And so all the Europeans, the Australians, the Canadians, the Americans, we all got pushed out. And then it was like Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, um, these types of countries who were getting hired to do things. And it just became a very, very different place very quickly. And, and it makes me sad. It still makes me sad today. I've been gone for almost a year now. And uh, yeah, it's just a shame.
1: Hey, but, you know, that's, uh, that's why, you know, like you say, flexibility is important. You saw that things were changing. You made your move. You went to Panama. You, you're a lot more welcome there. And, you know, your business is, is thriving and all is good. And if the other people don't want you, so be it. You go somewhere else where people actually want you and respect your business.
0: Exactly. Well, and I see, I, I really like being in a growing city. Like, I don't, not necessarily a growing country. I don't really care about the statewide, but I love the city. Like, I lived in Singapore um, back in 2007, maybe 2007, 2008. And, like, talk about growth. Oh my God, it was just so exciting. Every day something was happening. And then the same in the UAE. They were building, building, building. Now, here in Panama, it's the same thing. Um, have you spent a lot of time in in cities or in countries where you just see like so much growth happening, so much potential happening? Um, like, like talk to me about those types of ideas or things? I
1: mean, you see a lot of those in Africa, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> when you go around these capital cities, um, you just need to wait you know one year in between trips and you can barely recognize some entire neighborhoods. And you see all these like brand new buildings and malls popping up everywhere. Um, Another one that's changing very fast is, again, uh, Tashkent, Uzbekistan, the place is booming. Lots of construction, renovations, infrastructure development. But yeah, it makes a huge difference as opposed to, you know, when I go to France, nothing changes. The only new projects are some government office that gets renovated and some new social housing. Those are the only new things I see
0: in Canada, we get the big the big block stores. It's like, oh, a new Walmart or a, a giant Adidas store. That's like the stuff that's going in. I'm like, I don't really, not really what I'm thinking. What about Tbilisi? We've had conversations privately about Georgia a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. Georgia, Georgia is amazing on, on many different levels. Um, one is just a beautiful country of mountains. Uh, wine area, you have the sea, uh, the culture is super ancient, uh, very rich, um, fascinating history. And they they just put all these reforms into place like uh, 10, 10, 15 years ago. And now it's just an extremely efficient place to do business. You can just create a company in 24 hours. Um, just, you know, fill out a few documents and then the next day you show up at the drive through to pick up your incorporation, (laughs) your incorporation papers. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's fantastic. Um, the banking is exceptional. I, it's essentially kind of like Singapore level banking from 10 years ago, but you can just have access. All you need is $10,000 to open a premium account. And then you have a private banker on WhatsApp. So if you're an expat.
0: Really? Is that that true? That's crazy.
1: It's fantastic. It's fantastic. So if you're an expat that um, travels around the world and that, you know, invests a little bit here and there, sometimes if you have your bank back in Europe or back in the States or wherever, and you want to send money to some other country, your bank will just have so many problems and questions and issues. And the banks in, in Georgia, it's very simple. You just on your app. You can make a transfer of a few hundred thousand dollars easily on your on your app. And then, uh, if compliance has any issues, your private banker just hits you up on WhatsApp. He's like, oh, you know, do you have any? Do you have any? Oh, uh, compliance wants uh, has questions concerning the source of income or you know what this transaction is for. Then you send through all the documents, the PDFs, per email or per WhatsApp. And then you know, if compliance is fine, then boom, the money
0: just goes super easy that's amazing yeah bringing singapore like i've worked with um uh clients to get uh bank accounts in singapore and the minimum deposit is like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a lot of them and can go up from anywhere from 250 to 500 to a million dollars just to open a bank account and forget about getting the banker on what's up to answer your questions or to help you send them like that's just madness
1: exactly so and the banks are well capitalized and some of these banks you go there you don't even think it's a bank it's like a lounge you sit uh, there is a gentleman that comes and offers you tea coffee and then at some point you know your private banker just emerges from the back rooms and comes and sits with you and you know you discuss things it's it's on another level um I actually offer I started offering recently uh, remote bank account openings for Georgia as a service but Honestly, if if you want to save yourself the $500 fee, just go to, uh, just take a plane, go to Georgia, spend a few days there, open your bank account, go drink some wine, eat some good food, check out the country and uh, yeah, just a great, great experience.
0: But I think, I think paying for services from people who have done it is also, I think, I think you should kind of do both because I think this is an amazing country that you should visit, but at the same time, working with professionals like you, I think is also, you know, well worth the money. I, I yeah, I, I get frustrated sometimes when people will, you know, not want to spend a couple hundred dollars on a little bit of advice, but they're going to drop a $100,000 into an investment or something like that. And I'm like, okay, come on, you know, pay people what they're worth, yeah. you know, as a libertarian, I, I believe that people should be paid for their labor. Um I don't think that, I don't believe in the entitlement that everything should be given away for free as, as I'm running a podcast, which is 100% free, um, you know. <laughs> but I don't think it's hypocritical because I mean, I guess my business model is I give away the information for free and I charge for the services. And, uh, and, and my goal is always to build that trust and to help people as much as I can. And then, but, um, you know, wor- work with professionals. It, it's good. It's an important thing.
1: You know, if you're in Europe and you have time on your hands, you can just fly to Georgia, open it yourself. But if you're somewhere in the States and you don't necessarily want to fly to the South Caucasus, then, you know, using a service like mine definitely makes sense.
0: Brilliant. So I want to dig in. We've had, I I really love the conversations about the different countries and things like that. But I, I want to take an opportunity and I want to dig in with you a bit about your philosophy for investing and you know maybe how that differs from traditional mindset of of how people invest their money
1: so that's a very good question um my my philosophy is around flexibility really um okay the first point is i don't know anything that's the first point I, i just have to admit to myself that i i just don't know anything um i have to and then remain flexible those are the two the two main points so i don't have any structured thinking in terms of oh i need to have x and this and y and this cuz the world changes so fast you need to adapt yourself and as there is so much change it also means that you know you don't necessarily always understand everything that's happening um So I think, I think that's really important because what you see now is, I mean, what's happening is just crazy. Like everything, the money printing, the, the, the flu, just everything. And people are just investing here and there and they're gambling and you have all these talking heads on TV and on YouTube going around, you must do this, invest in this. This is a no brainer, this, that, but these people don't know. We don't know the consequences of everything that's happening around right now. We don't know the consequences of trillions of dollars that are being printed by pretty much every central bank in the world. You know, Japan did this for for 20 years, 30 years. They've been getting away with it. But what if all central banks together start doing this on an even bigger scale? We don't know what the consequences are. Same thing with negative interest rates. we we never had this before. And so, going around and talking, being 100% sure that something is or is going to happen or is not going to happen, it's just ridiculous. So, you just people just need to take a step back and and appreciate the fact that, you know, no one really knows what's going to happen. I think that's important. So, once you take this into account, then what you one thing that is safer to do is to one, internationalize because. You don't want to have everything in one country. Um, You know, tyranny can emerge anywhere. Um, And two, you want to diversify. And when I mean diversification, I mean, you know, across different asset classes. Those are the general two principles that you you want to keep, I'd say, with the background of admitting that you just don't know anything and that you're always trying to learn and educate yourself.
0: So do you find that a lot of people will go into an investment with like a certain expectation uh, and then find the information that supports that, that expectation? Like, do you think they get that information bias?
1: Yeah, definitely. And And if you look online, it's very easy to fall into that, you know, into that information bias. If, if you start, looking at, you know, gold, uh, gold videos and I love precious metals right now. I'm, you know, I'm quite heavy in terms of my precious metals exposure, but I'm also careful because if you start listening to some of these guys, um, you know, Peter Schiff or or whoever, um, you know, talking like 10,000, $20,000 gold, et cetera, it's, it's interesting but those are the people that are going to make you not sell when you should be selling. <laughs> so there's, there's always going to be someone out there talking with authority, confirming your own bias.
0: Well, I understand that completely. When I started with... Um... With Bitcoin and everything like that, I was buying Bitcoin in 2016, so i go all the way up to just under $20,000. But, you know, when John McAfee tells me that he's going to eat his own dick if it doesn't, uh, if it doesn't hit $100,000 uh, a coin, you know, maybe I should have sold that $20,000, but I didn't, you know, so.
1: yeah. And he was saying this on video, and he was clearly coked up, but still, <laughs> he was just confirming your bias. <laughs> yeah, and you know,
0: and I lost two hundred thousand dollars in a very short period of time. You know, but I mean, we all make mistakes. Um, I guess with something like that, I'm very uh, happy that I never brought any investors into it. Um, although I still hold Bitcoin today, and and it still makes up a. a, a small portion of my portfolio. Uh, I think it is so easy to get wrapped up in things, you know, and especially if you start reading and researching about one thing. Gold's another, like you just mentioned, gold is a great one. I love gold. I have, I have private vaults and, and have my precious metals, physical metals, and hopefully I'll own them for the rest of my life. But I mean, if you start getting really deep into the gold space, you're going to think like everything else is shit and all you should do is just buy gold. Even though we say, I say, they, lots of people say, shouldn't comprise more than 10 to or 20% of your portfolio. You know, you start listening to it and you're like, oh, well, if it's going to do this, then I might as well put 100% in. And it's like, okay, you know, moderation.
1: I'm definitely more than that right now, to be honest with you. I started about... Um, 18 months ago, reducing my exposure to property, um, gradually selling some property and increasing my exposure to precious metals. And then also, you know, precious metals, there's so many ways to invest in precious metals. The first one is always having the physical, like you mentioned, you know, in private vaults, preferably offshore to so really, you know, be even more diversified in a safe country. Um, and then if you want to speculate, then, uh, then you start playing into... You know, majors, uh, major gold mines, royalty companies, juniors, explorations. Do you
0: consider that a gold play or an equities play? Because for me, that's an equities play.
1: It's a gold play with leverage. So let's say that you buy a producer whose all-in sustaining costs are $1,100 per ounce of gold. When gold was at $1,200, that producer was making 100 dollars per ounce of of profit um now it's 1700 they're making six hundred so the their profit went up sixfold but your physical goal just went up you know I don't know fifty percent or forty percent so it provides yeah
0: but your investment went up six hundred percent
1: so the at least the the profit the cash flow etc so it provides a lot of leverage, but then again, you know, if prices go down, it it goes down a lot faster too. Yeah,
0: it's a it's a two-edged sword. But I guess for me, a big part of my precious metals holding is not just the growth that it's going to have as an investment, it's the hedge against so many other things. And I would argue that if you are not in full possession of the ownership of the precious metal, it is not going to do that. It, it just, it won't do its job as basically insurance. Um, you know, so I think how, how you own it, and, and I'm not saying don't own mining stocks. I've owned many of mining stocks um, during my life and in my investment career. Uh, I guess it's just looking at the reasons that you want to have it in your portfolio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. Um,
1: that's more of a, you know, playing the bull market and then you need to know when to get out. That's, uh, that's, that's the important part.
0: So how do you keep, how do you stay level headed during that craziness with the bulls?
1: I, I, I constantly educate myself. I never have an empty moment in my life. Uh, I'm constantly listening to, 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 to podcasts, to YouTube videos, to, you know, whenever I'm going for a walk, I'm listening whenever I'm cleaning the apartment, I'm listening whenever I'm. Working out, I'm listening. Whenever I'm in a queue, I'm probably reading something. I'm
0: always... I think, we are, I think we're soulmates. I think we're, we're <laughs> brothers from another mother. Or I, I don't know. What's a, what's, what are the kids saying these days? Because I, I totally resonate with that. I totally resonate with that.
1: It's the only way. It's the only way to do it. The, the world is changing so fast, you need to constantly educate yourself. Constantly. Um, so a few hours a day, I'm just learning, 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 and that's, that's what I do. And that's what helps guide my, my investments. So, you know, like I said, I don't know anything, but I hope that I know a little bit more than everyone else.
0: <laughs> and do you find yourself, are you like a very emotional person? Do you, do your emotions get in the way from your investing or do you have like a tight grip on, uh, on that and staying very logical? Cause I remember when I traded derivatives, um, I had to be like cold and calculative and write everything down. And every time I broke my own rules, I lost so much money. Like it was just like clockwork. That's a
1: very good point. I think what's important is that people develop their own investing style based on their own strengths. Um, Day trading, I know, is not for me because I would probably get a little too emotional. Um, I know it myself. I'm not a very patient person. And it just wouldn't be good for me. My core strength is I am good at macroeconomics, I'm good at seeing long term trends, hopefully seeing them a little bit before other people. Not too early either, because you know, in investing, you want to be early, but not too early. That's where the fine balance is. So I play on these core strengths. So it means that when I buy shares, I usually buy them at least for you know a few months or, or a few years, but typically a few months. Um, same thing when I buy property, I'll tell myself oh, if I buy this, what's the objective? Am I just going to flip it, or am I going to keep it for you know the next? Five years, et cetera. You just need to be clear on your on your objectives and and on your own style, really. Because once you start deviating from your own style, it's the game is completely different. You know, some guys are just momentum traders. They just go with momentum everywhere. And that's fantastic. But if they these guys can't do, you know, long-term decisions, they're they're, they're gonna mess it up. Um, and all mess up short-term momentum. Um, so just I focus on my core strengths.
0: Well, I think that there's just so much wisdom in that because those core competencies and, and knowing thyself is, is just so important. And I, and I can't highlight that or underline that enough. Um, and, I, and I think that resonates not just with investing, but certainly with business. Um, when people ask me what I do, uh, I explain to them, I, I write and I speak. These are my core competencies, and I want to do as much of that as possible. It is what I am extremely good at, and so many of the other things I pay other people to do. Um, you know, those are the things in in my business that that I'm really really good at. Um, so I try not to do the graphic design. I try not to do the web development. I try not to do ABCDFG. I try to do those few things where I really know I'm going to have a good, in, like a big impact. Um, and I think that with investing, you know, knowing thyself is is so 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 important. Yeah, very very
1: very much. So when I learned as well during the Bitcoin craze, I was there. I was there with you. I I got in in 2016. Um, Most of 2017, I kind of declared myself a a part-time day trader. And uh, yeah, when McAfee was talking nonsense, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah." So I I think that was fantastic learning um, because it's preparing us for the the next bubble. Because I think we will have a bubble in precious metals at some point. Um, I don't know how soon, but I think we will. And this one will be very – because it won't just be driven by greed. Because, uh, you know, the, the whole
0: crypto thing was just greed. Pure greed.
1: Everyone was greedy. Absolutely. Pure greed.
0: This one will have so much fear tied into it, though. It'll be... Yeah, exactly. It'll be both greed and fear. Yeah, because people are just losing faith in the institutions that they've grown up with. Um, you know?
1: It's going to be a crazy bubble. So it won't even be about fundamentals anymore. It'll just be about staying cool. And no one went to, you know, gradually take some money out and just observing market psychology. It'll just be about that. Just, you know, what are people doing? What are people thinking? It it won't even be fundamentals anymore.
0: And then uh, probably one of my last questions, because we're going to have to wrap up, although I think you and I could probably talk all day. Um, Have you seen that other countries are also... Uh, all the, like foreign investors are also really big into precious metals and these types of things, maybe also getting away from property, like you mentioned, or, or what's the, what's the temperature like in some of the other countries?
1: In Asian markets, traditionally people have a longing for precious metals. Um, and you know, I'd say that's almost irrelevant. Just look at what central banks are doing. They're printing money like crazy and buying gold like crazy. I mean, you know, they're buying gold with the money they're printing essentially so if there's you know i don't think you can make a stronger case than let's do what the central banks are doing
0: Well, I know having a chinese wife um, Chinese people are real estate and gold gold and silver, and that's that is their the extent of what they feel comfortable investing in and when I traded derivatives, my wife was super nervous was not did not like it at all did not understand it and i was in the uae so i was up till two o'clock in the morning trading and and short selling and things like this and it stressed her out and when i gave that up and put that behind me and moved into just real estate and precious metals she was like so calm and like now if, if we have extra money i'm like yeah we're gonna go buy however many thousands of dollars of silver she's like cool go for it like there's no there's no question you know and her parents give my daughter um like gold and silver for birthdays and for Chinese New Year and all these types of things. It's so ingrained in their culture. Um, so I think I think things like that are really interesting.
1: Yeah, and there's there's I think there's one point I want to add about Bitcoin, which few people are mentioning. It's just how fantastic it is to go past uh, capital controls. Um, in a world right now where there are few capital controls and you can move money from one country to another, well. Have- Relatively easy, you know. Once you're you go past the bank compliance, things are going to change. You know, you've seen it in Argentina, in Venezuela, in Lebanon, where the currency systems just collapse. And what do people want? Because I've had people contact me from these countries. I've, I've had clients from these countries, and. They, they don't really want that much gold because the gold is forced to stay in the country. You can't go at the airport with, you know, gold, they'll just detect it. Um, cash is also a bit hard to, it's hard to go through, you know, the airport with a bunch of cash, especially now that, you know, a hundred dollars, you know, 50 years ago was a lot. Now it's not much. So crypto is the best way. Um, so as you see more and more countries having, currency issues and and balance of payment issues you know for example you can have turkey turkey have have big problems and turkish people are smart they're savvy and you know they will not hesitate to use bitcoin so just this in itself, I I, I, see, I see as a as very promising for Bitcoin.
0: Well, and then your conversations or our conversations earlier about Africa, um, reading the the statistics of the amount of people in Africa who are unbanked, and their their lack of ability to to send money um, to one another over greater distances, like really you have Western Union, which can take a insane amount. Like high of a percentage, like it, it wouldn't be unreasonable to expect that you would lose twenty percent of your money off the top with something like Western Union. But when you go to uh, Bitcoin and it's one one p- fraction of one percent uh, in transaction costs, and and they're not exponential; they don't grow in the same amount uh, as as you go higher. Like you can do these micro transactions, you can have commerce, you can do all these things on cheaply made. Chinese phones, smartphones that are, are being sold in Africa, and and you're just opening it up to tens of millions, hundreds of millions of, of people.
1: Yeah. 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 Completely. Not completely. No, the, the world is just changing so fast, we need to, we need to adapt ourselves. Really.
0: Well, perfect. Let us love. I love this conversation. I think that this was so much fun. I definitely, we'll have to have you back on the show at some point. Uh, in the meantime, if my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to learn more about what you do, where can we send them?
1: Just simply go to the thewanderinginvestor.com. Um, it's, my, it's my blog, and I write articles on a you know, every week or every two weeks and sign up to the private list. It's free and you'll get all the, you'll get all the updates. So it's, it's really, it's been my, my part-time project lately. My main focus is still my investment. Now I've been doing this blog. I've having, I've had a lot of fun with it, met a lot of people through this blog. And so, um, including you and, uh, yeah, it's fun. So just subscribe to the private list. It's free and, um, enjoy the, enjoy the free information and free research.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show and I'll talk to you soon. Okay, my friend. Cheers. Hey everyone, I just wanted to remind you to visit expatmoneyshow.com and sign up for my private newsletter EMS Pulse. Right now, we are sharing the weekly episodes from the podcast, but also a ton of other products and services that we're going to be offering, lots of language programs, lots of tips and tricks for being an expat, whether you're a first-time expat or an expat hopeful. There's just so much going on at expatmoneyshow.com. I really hope that you get a chance to come and visit us, join the newsletter, and then from there, maybe join our Facebook group at expatmoneyforum.com lots happening. I really want to share it with you guys. And the best way to stay connected is through these two sites, expatmoneyshow.com and expatmoneyforum.com. Thank you so much for listening to today's interview. Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop Capitalizing on the Globally Recognized Resort Brand Coming.